I'm happy to introduce tonight's speaker, Megan McArdle. Megan McArdle is the business and economics editor for The Atlantic. She has worked at three startups, a consulting firm, an investment bank, a disaster recovery firm at Ground Zero, and The Economist. Ms. McArdle holds a BA for creative writing from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from the University of Chicago. Please give a warm welcome to Megan McArdle. Tonight I'm here to talk about failure, and one of my uh, one of my Twitter interrogators said, "What you know? Why on earth would you want to do that?" And my answer, of course, was, "Write what you know." Um, but actually, failure turns out to be incredibly important. How an, how an individual or a business or a society handles failure tells you a lot about how they're going to succeed. And this is a really underappreciated fact. Failure is sort of the redheaded stepchild of, of uh, life experiences. No one likes it. It hangs out in the closet a lot by itself, moping. And I actually want to, I, I come here not to bury failure, but to praise it tonight. Because how a society handles failure tells you how dynamic that society is. It tells you how well it takes care of people who make mistakes and how it handles the unexpected. The hidden strength of American society is actually how good we are at failure. You hear a lot about the various, you know, our, our dynamic spirit and so forth, but a lot of it is just how well we're able to fail and how accepting we are of people who have done. So I'm going to start off tonight just by talking a little bit about my story, because when I say write what you know, I actually have been inspired a little bit by things that have happened to me. So in 2001, I graduated from the University of Chicago with an MBA, and I found myself on the job market in what was, at the time, <laughs> one of the worst recessions uh, for MBAs in, in history. Now, um, now people are looking back enviously and going, you guys didn't know how good you had it. And so I had a job with a management consulting firm actually by October of my last year, so I had a good last year. And then uh, in the spring, they called me up and said, well, business is a little slow. So you're going to start in October. Uh, what if you started in maybe February instead? And, and so I canceled my trip to Spain, which I'd been planning to take with my signing bonus. And I called my parents and said, mommy, can I come home? Um, and I moved back in to my parents' spare bedroom just to wait until my job started. And while I was there, uh, while I was staying there in the summer of, in the fall of 2001, uh, some guys drove some planes into the World Trade Center. As it happened, I grew up in New York, so I was not very far. I was a couple miles from the site. I knew a lot of people in the building. And uh, my father actually was uh, uh, the head of a trade association for the construction industry. And they were looking for administrative support staff because it was they didn't want strangers. They said this sudden need to handle the, the disaster uh, processing, which is a million people had gone down there. One guy drove a crane from like Ohio all the way across the country. And, but they didn't want people they didn't trust on the site. And because they knew my dad, they knew he had a daughter who wasn't doing much except teaching Princeton Review. He said, you want to come down and help out for a few days. That turned into a year. Meanwhile, the management consulting firm called me up and said, what about May? <laughs> um, I said, okay, May. And I, I kept doing this. And I was, it was not glamorous work. I mean, I was still incredibly glad and grateful that I did it. But I was basically what I like to call sort of executive copy girl. I did whatever needed to be done to get keep things moving down on the site. I worked in a trailer. It was really cold. Uh, and then the construction, and then the, the consulting firm called again and said, what about never? Um, and uh, they, they basically imploded, fired the whole associate class. None of us had ever worked a day there. And I was cut adrift after nine months working at this construction site. I was still working there, but I didn't have a career. And so I suddenly started looking for one. That was a little difficult at the time. I talked to the career counselor. She said, well, can you go back to doing what you used to do? And I said, what I used to do was technology consulting. So nonetheless, I looked for some of those jobs. I went into a recruiter. I think the nadir of my life was when I went into a recruiter who I'd actually worked with uh, before I went to business school. And what had been just rows and rows of desks were now down to the desks were still there, but there were only three people in the office. And uh, the guy actually looked at me and said, I don't have a job for you. I don't have a job for my brother-in-law. And probably in a few weeks, I don't have a job for me. Why don't you go find a nice banker and have babies? I explained that, that the bankers were all getting fired too. But <laughs> 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 
So I, I was looking around. Meanwhile, I had started a blog. I had a lot of anger. I knew a lot of people who died in, in, in the crash. And I was originally going to blog about the site. But as it turned out, I couldn't do that without getting either fired or arrested. So instead, I started blogging about my business school curriculum. And as you may recall, with Enron and Worldcom, there was actually a lot to blog about. There were a lot of things to explain to people who didn't know, for example, why MCI really shouldn't have gone and capitalized those operating expenses. And the great thing about a blog was that I had all this time and space to explain it. I could take 3,000 words if I needed it, which you could never do in a newspaper. So I was really enjoying myself. I started getting more readers. Uh, I was one of the first economics bloggers out there. Uh, and I eventually thought, well, maybe nothing else is sort of biting. I, ha I was doing te some technology consulting for small businesses I found. I was making money, but I still didn't have a long-term career. And I was really starting to think I wasn't going to have one. I was living in my spare bedroom, my parents' spare bedroom at the age of 29, which is exactly as lame as it sounds. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll become a freelance journalist. As you can imagine, my parents were thrilled to think that I had just spent $100,000 uh, getting a degree of, of little to no use in my future career. Um, and my dad told me, you really, really have to think about this. Uh, and I said, but you know, if I work really hard, I could write for The Economist or The Atlantic. And he was like, you really have to think about this. So I actually sat down and I, I analyzed it as a business school problem. I said, well, I would, how would I do this? I would sort of project the cash flows out and then I would discount them because a dollar today is worth much more to me than a dollar tomorrow. And so I would reduce future cash flows by, by some interest rate. And so I did this, and I think it had about the same expected value as like becoming addicted to crack. Um, but I did it anyway, which actually, I, I guess, is how a lot of people get addicted to crack. Um, and as it happened, I met someone at a party. She worked at The Economist. I said, well, if you guys ever have an opening, you know, let me know. They called me up, and uh, at this point, I was actually, I had been offered the job as a secretary at a construction firm and was actually thinking about taking it. I do type really fast and accurately, and I'm, I'm pretty good with the alphabet. So I, they, I went in for an interview, and they said, well, why do you want to do this? And I, what I did not say the truth, which was, I am desperate. Uh, what I said was also true, actually, which is, you know, I only have this one life, and I'm not going to spend it just trying to make money. I want to do something that I really enjoy and I think is meaningful. And then I heard nothing from them. And two months later, I get a call. There's a British accent on the other end. And it says, hello, this is Aunt Gottlieb. And I said, oh, oh, hi. And I was a little confused because it had been two months. And he, uh, he said, I said, uh, how are you? And he said, well, actually, I'm calling to offer you the job. And I, I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> and he said, he was really kind of taken aback. <laughs> he was like, oh, and, 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 and we thought we'd pay you um, $40,000 a year. And I was like, oh, you're going to pay me. Awesome. <laughs> um, because my problem wasn't eating. My problem was a sort of sense of meaning and career in my life, a, a problem that afflicts a lot of upper middle class kids, um, except that I was 30. And so I took the job with The Economist, and that launched me on a, a career that's now lasted seven years in journalism. In 2007, I moved to The Atlantic, and I was, I was phenomenally lucky. I also think that the failure freed me in a lot of ways, right? Had I, had that job offer come a year before, would I have dared to take it? I had $1,000 a month in loan payments to make. The reason I could take it was I didn't have anything else left. I was kind of down to, um, you know, I didn't have other opportunities, so I actually pursued the one I really wanted, but the one I would not have dared to because it was so risky. So failure actually can be incredibly freeing. Joseph Schumpeter, coined this phrase in the 20s called creative destruction. And he said, creative destruction is the essence of capitalism. And the way you can think about creative destruction is, you know, when you're, when you're going to build, when you're going to build a building, you first have to demolish what's there. You have to clear the site and flatten it uh, and make it ready to take a new project. And in a lot of ways, failure does that for us if we let it. So Dan Gilbert, who's a uh, a psychologist has written a book called Stumbling on Happiness, which I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't read it. Read it, And he talks about the phrase, the best thing that ever happened to, you, to me, and the odd things that often precede it. How about getting left at the altar? Um, getting fired in a really public and humiliating way? Or um, getting cancer? Lance Armstrong actually described getting cancer as the best thing that ever happened to him. People do. People describe these catastrophic events in their lives surprisingly often. If you've ever been through a catastrophic breakup 
where you were sitting in your living room for three months watching the science channel because you didn't want to watch anything happy because that made you sad. And you didn't want to watch anything sad that made you sad. So what you watched was a lot of TV about asteroids hitting the Earth. Um, I'm not saying that like I personally am perhaps the world's leading expert on asteroids hitting the Earth or anything. But so it turns out that, that it can clear the way. It can build this. But it really matters how that happened. Um, Think about the Japanese banking system. We're in the middle of a, a big debate about why Japan has been stagnant for basically 20 years. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But one really plausible explanation is just that they couldn't let anything go down. When the Japanese stock market bubble crashed, they didn't do what we do, we did, which was basically sit around and go, oh, that's really terrible. I am so sad pets.com is gone. Uh, I am, actually. They, they're... they're their project of mailing dog food to me at below cost was really well appreciated in my household. Instead, what they did was the banks, the, the government didn't want companies to fail. Companies failing meant unemployment. It meant dislocation. It meant all the bad things that we are really afraid of. We like security. We value it. So do the Japanese. And, and the banks didn't want them to fail because failing meant that you had to write down the value of these loans. And in some cases, the bank was probably going to go under when the state of the full state of their losses became apparent. So what they did instead was they started just cycling more and more money into these companies. They would, make, they would take a company, a bad construction company, for example, that had made a whole bunch of terrible loans to buildings that they couldn't rent uh, because it was a huge glut of office space. And they would go lend this company more money. And the money that they were lending them was basically just being, made, being used to make payments on the loans. That cycle continued for a long time. And the reason it continued was that no one was willing to force the recognition of what had happened. You can argue in a way that we did that with, with our banks. I would argue that we did not do it to nearly the extent or for the duration that Japan did. But that had real effects on their economy because there was no capital going to new firms. All the capital was being poured into these old firms that were already basically zombies, that already had so much debt that the idea that they were ever going to kind of come back to health looked pretty unlikely. So that's one way to handle failure. The other way is to think about it the way someone like Thomas Edison did. The story is possibly apocryphal, but I love it, so I'm going to tell it anyway, because I think it actually illustrates a valuable lesson. So Thomas Edison is trying to build the incandescent light bulb. In fact, Joseph Swan in England had already invented it, but he's trying to make a commercial uh, incandescent light bulb that he can mass produce cheaply and thus sell electricity to all of the millions of people out there who could use it. And he went through a lot of products trying to make a workable filament that would burn for a long time and not cost a zillion dollars. Uh, you know, there's varying counts of how many he actually tried, 2,000, 8,000, 10,000. But at some point during this process, a reporter went to him and said, Mr. Edison, how does it feel to have failed? And Thomas Edison looked at him and said, failed? What do you mean failed? I have discovered 10,000 things that do not make a good filament for an electric light bulb. <laughs> You know, that, that sounds a little bit like motivational speakery, but in fact, this is actually a really important insight. Discovering what doesn't work is how you figure out what does. It's an, a lot of incredible, incredibly important information. Now, a lot of people sort of criticized Edison and said, if he had better theory, because Edison was just like the, the epitome of the brute force inventor. He just kind of kept trying stuff until something stuck. A lot of people have criticized him saying, well, you know, he could have had better theory, it wouldn't have been so brutal, it would have been faster, etc. But the fact is, the guy invented a lot of stuff, and he refined a lot of other stuff. So he must have been doing something right. There's a story I really like by the guy who does UI for Palm. He has this project where he goes out, and he takes groups, and he gives them 25 strands of spaghetti and, like, some masking tape, and says... Um, Builds, build the tallest structure that will support an egg. And it's interesting which groups do well and which groups don't. So, I mean, group one group that does pretty well that you would kind of expect, engineers. Um, group I think a, the highest scoring one, if I recall correctly, was a group of Singaporean engineers. Uh, group that does worst is MBAs. Apparently, they spend all of their time arguing about who's going to be in charge of building the spaghetti tower. Um, but one group does surprisingly well, kindergartners. 
they actually like score pretty high up there. Um, why do they do this? This is kind of surprising. Well, first of all, kindergartners don't know about rules yet, as any of you who have children will recall. They, they are the only people who ask for more spaghetti. There's no rule that says you can't have more, but when we're given 25 strands of spaghetti, we tend to accept 25 strands of spaghetti. Like, that must be the, the God-ordained number. But what do they do with that spaghetti is actually interesting. They have no plan. They do not sit around in like a focus group and talk about how this is. They just start building. And then they, when they break, they go get more spaghetti and they try. And through incremental improvement and trial and error, they actually get something that looks like some sort of like monster out of a really bad B movie, but actually does a really good job of supporting an egg, which is what it's supposed to do. Um, and they have no fear of failure because they're five. No one's watching them. They don't feel like this is going to go on their grade transcript for Harvard yet. So despite the fact that Edison is criticized, brute force trial and error can be really powerful. And this is, I mean, you know this, right? Because this is why you are not a single-celled organism. Evolution produced this incredible array of, you are like the most powerful computer in the world. Each brain in here does stuff that we still can't program, a lot of stuff that we still can't program computers to do. Recognizing faces. There's a whole module in your brain that just does that, and sometimes it goes wrong, so that uh, I know a journalist in DC who I like, I've had dinner with him, and, and you know, I see him fairly often. Every time I see him, he stares at me and I say, hi, Jonathan, it's Megan McArdle, because he cannot recognize me, despite the fact that I am the only six foot two journalist, female journalist wandering around. Uh, the high heels, you would think, would kind of tip him off, but no, I have to tell him who I am every single time. So we notice when these modules go, go badly, but we don't usually notice when they go well. Well, that is all evolution. That is all just nature trying a whole bunch of stuff, and then most of it deciding, well, that was a bad idea. Um, I mean, failure ultimately is nature's way of saying, don't do that. It doesn't work. And what nature does with its failures is it kills them. So in fact, that's a, like, this is a really powerful idea. The way to succeed, the way to do complicated things that you might not have dreamed of, the way to find things that work that you don't think would work, like that alien creature that the kindergartner has made out of spaghetti, the way you find those things is through evolution. You try a bunch of stuff and you kill everything that doesn't work. I don't mean people, I just mean like ideas, projects. This is the exact opposite of how most people want things to be, right? We hate failure, we fear it, we don't want to be around it. We certainly don't want it to happen to us, despite the fact that after it does, in retrospect, we often describe it as the best thing that ever happened to us. Many of you may be familiar with the concept of loss aversion, but this is an incredibly powerful force in human society and in individual human rights. So here's a thought experiment. There's a disease about to invade the United States. We don't know how deadly it is. We have a pretty good idea that either it's going to kill no one or it's gonna kill a million people. Now, some guy comes along with a vaccine. 50% chance, it's, uh, you know, 50% chance a million dead, 50% chance no one will die at all. So some guy comes along with a vaccine. We can vaccinate everyone in the United States, it will give them immunity to this, this disease. However, vaccines have side effects. And what we know is that this vaccine with basically 100% certainty is gonna kill 200,000 people. How many people in this room would support vaccinating the population of the United States? It's pretty small. Even though that's like statistically, the expected value of vaccinating people is much better than the expected value of not. But when we're faced with an actual concrete loss, we will always choose to gamble, even when it's a bad deal. That's why people so often, why you hear from compulsive gamblers so often, right? They're just, they just wanna get even with the house and then they'll stop. Despite the fact that mathematically the odds of them ever getting even with the house, because that's not the way the odds run, are very low. When we have a certain loss, we will do almost anything, no matter how costly, to avoid it. We are programmed to shy away from failure. We're socially incredibly uncomfortable with it. When I was unemployed, you know, I, I did go through career counseling training at, at, at Chicago. They put, a, unsurprisingly, a high emphasis on getting a job afterwards. And so I would go to parties, and I realized after about three or four months that I was making my classmates uncomfortable. 
And they would sort of run through, well, have you done this? Have you networked? Have you done informational interviews? And so forth? And I'd say, yes, 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 I've, I've done all this, right? I also got the same handout from Career Services. And also I had a job for five years before I went to business school. I'm vaguely familiar with how to get a job. And they would get angry at me or frustrated. What I realized after a while, right, is that especially MBAs, MBAs are people, you go to school because you're really good at following rules and you check the boxes and good things are supposed to happen to you because you followed rules and checked the boxes. And so when that didn't happen, for a lot of people, it was as if someone had just sort of said, yeah, gravity doesn't work anymore. Um, and so when I said, yeah, I've done, I've, I've checked all the boxes, followed all the rules, and I still don't have a job, that was really terrifying for them, right? Because if it could happen to me, it could happen to them. So what they decided instead was that I must be clearly doing something wrong. I could not possibly be using the formula because we know the formula works. And so when I said, no, I've done all that, what they felt like was, well, either I must be doing it really badly, I'm re either I'm resistant or I'm lying to them. Because the thing that they didn't want to think about was the formula and whether it might just sometimes not work for people. We want to build failure-proof systems. Right? We want to build a system that can't fail. This is what you always hear about air, everything from airline security to a banking system. We're all looking for something that, that can't go wrong the way all the bad thing, the bad thing can't happen to us again. The government needs to make it so the bad thing can't happen again. But systems that are built not to fail, it isn't that they don't fail, it's that they fail catastrophically. Security expert Bruce Schneier calls these brittle systems. So if you think about, say, one that's really common, we want a national ID card, right? I want a national ID card so that I can never have illegal immigrants getting to work um, without permits. I can never have terrorists getting to the United States and, and, and moving around without the government knowing or so forth. Um, so let's build this big, comprehensive, biometric, crazy, sci-fi um, system that will prevent that from happening. Well, the problem with that, of course, what happens when your national ID card is compromised? As you know from social security numbers, which were never supposed to be identification numbers, once this system becomes ubiquitous, if it's compromised at the source, and it's not going to be impossible to compromise it, even if it were you know, totally secure from a computing standpoint, you could still bribe someone who works for the bureau to put you in. So if the system can be compromised, which it can, once it fails, that person, there's not gonna be any way to stop them, right? because they're in the system. They have a national ID card that will allow them to go anywhere, get employed, et cetera. What you want instead is a system that fails well, where you have multiple overlaying um, checks that keep it from being catastrophic. But more importantly, I think, and something that most people don't really think about, what happens after the system has failed? So you know, when, I, when I start with a talk and I talk about evolution and so forth, it kind of sounds like I'm talking about a little bit of like social Darwinism, like cull the weak or so. This is not what I'm talking about. What I'm actually trying to promote is the notion that building systems that handle failure after it's happened. Joseph Schumpeter got the idea that, say, we should let companies that don't work go out of business rather than propping them up. And this is something the United States is very good at doing, a GM aside. In general, we're pretty good at saying, you know what, you had your shot pity it didn't work out, move on to the next thing. But there are actually other systems, the way that we deal with the aftermath actually matters a lot. Um, and so I'm gonna talk for the last part of my talk about a few of those systems and why they work so well and why the US is so good at doing this. So here's an interesting fact. Two thirds of Americans say that they have at some point considered starting their own business or that they dream of doing so in the future or so forth. In Europe, that number is less than 40%. It's really low. I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine who went to Switzerland and he was talking with a bunch of Swiss bankers, fairly high up, but employees of the banks. They did not own the, these banks, they worked for them. And because the banks, a lot of banks in Switzerland are they're small privately held banks that are owned tightly held by families who have run them for a long time. He was out to dinner with a bunch of them and so he asked a sort of naturally American question. He said, why don't you guys go and start your own bank? And they all just stared at him. And he got a little uncomfortable, and then one of the, the guys who had lived in America uh, sort of took him aside, and he said, here, starting your own company, when someone tells you that, it's kind of like if you told me you're 18 and you're going to get married. Like, I, I hope that works out for you, but it's not a good idea. And that is an attitude towards going out on your own, right? In Europe, the priority is having a secure, high-status job. It isn't taking risks that could go really catastrophic, that could end in the next pets.com. Um, 
And European, and what also happens in Europe is that if you are the head of a business that fails, you're kind of put out to pasture. It's not that you're going to starve. You may find a sinecure, you'll go into early retirement and so forth. But you're not going to be given another position of responsibility. And you compare that to the attitude in Silicon Valley, where people walk in and they, the first thing they want to hear in the interview is, you know, they want you to talk about some enterprise that you tried to start that just failed catastrophically. They consider that a resume bonus. And in fact, it is. People who have started a company that failed before, they tend to do better the next time around. Now, they're still more likely than not to fail the second time, but so is someone who's succeeded. In fact, if you've started a successful business, starting a successful business does give you a slight edge. It's still the fact, the fact that 30% of the time you'll succeed and 70% of the time you will fail. And that's because it's hard and no one really knows. You know, William Goldman said about, about movies, no one knows. Steven Spielberg did not say, you know what, I just made E.T. And in a couple of years I'm going to make Jurassic Park, so I think I'm going to make 1941. Um, instead, he didn't know. <laughs> he thought it was going to be a great movie. He just turned out to be catastrophically incorrect about that. Um, similarly in business, one of my favorite stories is about uh, Coke, when they were doing New Coke. The, the head of Coke recognized this was a somewhat risky proposition, but they were getting really beaten down by Pepsi. And so he said, what's the biggest marketing survey that has ever been done? And his market research people ran off and they came back with a number and he said, okay, double it and go out and do that. And they came back, they were like, this thing is blowing off the charts. America loves New Coke, they can't wait. And he said, okay, do it again. They were like, you, you kidding, right? He's, nope, go do it again. So they ran off, they did it again, came back. The stuff is like the next sliced bread. He come back, he says, okay, just one more time. So they ran these surveys three times. And uh, New Coke lasted 121 days, nearly took the company down with it. And it, as it turned out, there was missing information. So they were giving out three-ounce three ounce samples, and New Coke was sweeter. And so people tended to like New Coke. People had also underestimated how much they would, how loss-averse they were, how much they would be upset at the thought of losing something they already had. And in fact, it ended up rejuvenating the company because it rekindled people's love for the original Coke. Um, but it was an incredibly risky move, and no matter how certain they tried to be, there was no certainty. There is no certainty in the world. Our institutions are exceptionally good at handling that kind of situation, at handling this sort of inevitable uncertainty in the world. So the first institution I want to talk a little bit about is the American bankruptcy system, which is, you know, again, not a much-loved institution, but it should be. American bankruptcy is fantastic. First of all, uh, what a lot of you may not realize, it is by far the most generous bankruptcy system in the world. So when I was at The Economist, I was writing about our draconian 2005 bankruptcy reform. I guess I, I use that word in, uh, in, in scare quotes. Um, I was writing about our draconian 2005 bankruptcy reform, and I had a lot of consumer advocates calling me using words like draconian, and a lot of uh, bank lobbyists calling me using words like deadbeat. Um, and I went into the editorial meeting. I was trying to explain what the new reforms did, how bankruptcy would look after the reforms. And after a while, one of my colleagues was like, well, of course you have to reform that. That is ridiculous. How can you just declare bankruptcy and walk away from your debts like that? I was like, no, 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 this is the draconian bad thing. It was much easier before. So even after our draconian reform, we have chapter seven, which is just not, we invented it. We are the only country that thought, you know what we should do? We should let you walk into a bankruptcy judge and just say, hey, you know what? You know about that, that $100,000 I borrowed on my credit cards? Not going to pay it. So uh, here's the $7.95 I have in my checking account, and uh, everyone have a nice day. Um, why is Chapter 7 so good? Well, there's a couple of reasons that institutionally it's good. It's easy access to the courts. It allows people who've made some really, I mean, I don't want to say that no one who's declared bankruptcy has made mistakes. Bankruptcy, there are lots of people who get into bankruptcy just because something terrible happened. There are people who get, get into bankruptcy um, in a sort of mixed thing. There are people who tended to live closer to the edge of their income, and then a divorce or a job loss just tips them over the edge. They were fine, but they weren't resilient to a bad event happening. Um, and then there are some people who just can't seem to control their spending. They're not the majority by any means, but they do exist. I mean, the, the bankers were not all wrong about that. But it gives those, all of those people easy access to the courts. It's quick, you can go in. The exemptions, the, the amount of assets that you can feel, shield from creditors is extremely generous. 
um, by European standards. Um, in Europe, not only do you have to go on a payment plan, in places like, in, there are some places in Scandinavia, for example, that if you walk in and say, I want to declare bankruptcy, and the judge decides that you just wasted the money that you borrowed, he can deny you a discharge. Not because you suddenly magically developed the ability to pay your bills, but just because he thinks you kind of don't deserve it. Um, on the corporate side, we have reorganization instead of liquidation. Again, that was a very American concept of, you know what, I know this company just borrowed a ton of money that it can't pay back, but let's see if we can keep it going anyway. That's really great. A going enterprise preserves value. It preserves knowledge, but it also preserves you know, jobs and capital. Those things get tremendously destroyed in a liquidation. Um, you know, I, I, I did oppose the government bailout of GM, but the thing that was done right was that they reorganized the company rather than just doing a fire sale of the assets. A fire sale of the assets would have resulted in tremendous destruction of value because firms are composed not just of physical assets. They're composed of human capital, people who know how to work the machines, people who know where everything is. And that all goes away if you just liquidate the company. But what's interesting about the American Bankruptcy Code is that it actually promotes entrepreneurship, which is not something that a lot of people were talking about. I ended up opposing the 2005 reform not because I wanted to get into a moral battle because, between the, the deadbeats and, and the, uh, the you know, cruel bankers who wanted to hold the, hold the poor upside down and shake them until their hearts fell out and they could sell them, um, but because it was an efficiency question. Ultimately, I didn't feel like Americans were having a hard time getting credit. <laughs> Um, I don't think anyone else really felt that that was, that was a real problem either. Um, and it turns out that bankruptcy is an incredibly effective tool for promoting entre entrepreneurship, which doesn't seem obvious at the time. But the United States offers this really neat little natural experiment. So in the United States, the, federal, the bankruptcy code is federal. It's organized um, at the federal level, but the exemptions are determined by state. So, for example, in Delaware, which has a lot of credit card companies, the homestead exemption, which is the amount of home equity that you can shield from creditors, is about $50,000. In Texas and Florida, it's unlimited. Doesn't matter how big the house you own, you can shield all of it, which is why, for example, Dick Fold is now trying to transfer his half of the home he owns in Florida to his wife in order to shield it from creditors and the inevitable bankruptcy. So what this gives economists is a measurable way, is, is a neat little experiment where they can see how the same rules applied with just different levels of that exemption affect people. And because people's house is their biggest asset, that's a really important exemption for them. Most of the other exemptions for 401ks and for things like workman's tools just aren't that important to most people. So it turns out that, in fact, in states that have a better, a higher homestead exemption, there is a measurably higher rate of entrepreneurship. This actually makes sense when you think about it. There's two reasons, there's two sides of this. First is the incentive effect. If I'm contemplating starting a business, most businesses are financed by personal credit. An astonishing number of businesses get their seed capital from like MasterCard and Visa. But even kind of more sophisticated firms, you know, I, I went to interview a wire factory owner a couple months back, and he's been in business now for 10 years. He's got 30 employees. He's got a ton of capital and a ton of equipment. He's still, when he goes in to apply for a loan to get a new piece of equipment, it's, he's signing it on his personal account. They want his three years of his tax records to go through. Small businesses do not have access to capital apart from the, the credit of their owners. Um, so that's one way in which this matters. If you think about if I start this business and I have to get a bank loan and I might end up with my kids on the street, it looks a lot less attractive to start a business. But there's also a capital effect. So as we talked about, people start businesses over and over again. Repeat on, serial on, entrepreneurship, even from people who tried once and failed, is common. And people who, who tried once and failed often do succeed the second time around. Well, if you lost your house in the last time and you're still chained to a payment plan because you went into Chapter 13 and you have to spend five years repaying your previous creditors, it's a little hard to get going on that second business. You need a day job to make those payments. So freeing people from the past allowing them to get what bankruptcy um, specialists call a fresh start. That's a really powerful way to keep people moving forward. Now, entrepreneurship is not the only important component of this. There are a lot of people who need a fresh start. Being chained to the bad mistakes that you made in the past is a really terrible thing to happen to anyone. And while I, I love entrepreneurship, and I'm glad that this dy dynamism is, is you know, contributed to our society, in a lot of ways, I think it's way more important that we give this fresh start to people who have fewer opportunities, lower social capital, less money, and are further down the income scale. They need it even more. They need the ability to move on and start over and try to move forward with their lives.
talk again, I'm going to talk a little bit about the FDIC. Actually, I'm going to skip the FDIC because I see that I have run, I am close to running over. So, um, but the FDIC actually works very similarly. It's a resolution authority. There is one of the most phenomenal, phenomenally effective institutions we have. It's probably in my it, like my favorite New Deal institution anyway. Um, only economics journalists sit around and do this. Like rank your five top <laughs> New Deal institutions. But they go in there, they're so effective. These guys can take a bank that is failing, move in on Friday afternoon, and by Monday morning have them open for business, have, have stripped down all the assets, identified where everything is, just go in, clean it up, made the depositors whole, and move on. And so no one, there's not even a hiccup, right? We've basically ended the bank run. How did we do it? We did not try to be fair. Because fair would probably mean that if you don't pay any attention to, you know, or a lot of people would argue, if you don't pay any attention to what's happening in your bank, well, then you should lose your money. Um, I'm not particularly persuaded by this argument for other reasons, but we don't try to be fair. We don't try to figure out which depositors should have known. We just give them all their money back. We just send the government in with like a big sack of cash and hand it out to people whether or not they deserve it. That's actually like a pretty powerful idea, but it's not one that people like. <laughs> It's a really, really unpopular idea, as you can see from the reaction to the, the bank bailouts that we just did. So to wrap up, I'm going to talk a little bit about what, what principles you can kind of pull out of these ideas. What are the principles for better failure? The first is don't try to make systems failure-proof. You can't do it. And if you don't plan for failure, it will happen in the worst possible way. But the second is, pay as much attention to what happens after the failure as you do to the decision to allow failures. And what, there are, I think, about five principles that I think are really important to kind of building systems that handle failure well. The first is trying more means failing more. Trying is good. I mean, the web culture, Silicon Valley, what it does really well is just throw a bunch of stuff up against the wall, and most of it doesn't work. Google is terrific at this, right? They roll out a ton of programs that kill most of them because they just aren't very good, but they don't know until they try. So you lower the cost of failure, you lower it as much you roll out as much stuff as possible, you see what works, and then you're very good and aggressive about saying, yeah, that didn't work, you know, cut it. So recognize failure early, and that's really, really important. You have to be willing to say, yeah, I tried that, and that wasn't the best idea. The third is terminate the things that don't work. The fourth is avoid blame. We have a really, really powerful instinct for justice, but it often really does us a disservice in these situations, in part because we think that we would have known, right? When we look at a situation from the outside, it's always easier to picture yourself kind of, oh, well, I would have known New Coke was terrible. But you probably wouldn't have. Because the universe is really, really complicated and trying to figure out what 300 million of your fellow citizens think, really difficult. Um, so we tend to think our, ourselves as more competent and therefore we blame other people more. We seek justice. Now that this instinct evolved in small groups of 50, when, you know, it was probably pretty easy to monitor if someone was correctly hitting a, a piece of fruit with a rock and getting the juice out or, or whatever people were doing on the veld. But in a complex society where we're very specialized and where most of human interaction, right, we're, we have a lot more privacy, so we don't see everything that goes on, it's a lot harder to monitor people. And so getting those calculations correct is really, really difficult. It's also counterproductive because if you get into a blame situation, people are going to start getting defensive and you're going to lose the information. The last thing I would say is that failure should be painful. I don't want to you know, go too far and say that, that you know, easy bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is painful. Most people who go through it, there's shock and shame. It hits their credit report. It should be painful, but the pain should be of a very specific kind. Right? You don't want it to be so pain-free that people feel aren't worried about it happening at all. But it should be short and sharp. Because what the most important thing is, is getting rid of what economists call sunk costs. Some costs are money that you've spent that you can't get back. You spent $100,000, I don't know, say getting an MBA, and then realized that you weren't going to get an MBA-level job. Um, now, I could have kept going for an MBA job for another three years. Um, I might have found one. But in fact, I found something better instead. So you have to be willing to cut loose your sunk costs and say, yeah, this is how the plans were going. We spent all this money. I'm not throwing any more good money after bad. I'm going in a new direction, no matter how difficult it is and how, how much... Other people resent it. I don't want to make this sound like a panacea, though, because like there's a tendency, like policy ideas are kind of like the ginseng of wonks. Once you get one, like it cures everything and has no bad side effects, and that is actually not the case. 
Um, first of all, as I say, we have a powerful instinct for fairness, and this violates it. Handing money out to depositors violates it. Handing money out to, to banks violates it. Um, you know, letting people go scot-free violates a lot of people's sense of fairness. The bankruptcy, the, it's really, every time I write about bankruptcy, I get a lot of people who are like, but they borrowed money they couldn't pay back. And I'm like, yeah, but they don't have it. You know, we, we can sit around and, and, and make them feel bad about it for their 10 years, but they still aren't going to have any more money than they do now. So there's sort of no point. Trying to, to get away from our sense of fairness in a big society makes things go a lot more smoothly. Second thing, as I say, we don't like to be around failure. It worries us. Um, the third is that we tend to think of people who try a lot of stuff, most of which goes bad, as not serious. I was talking to some law students today, and she said, you know, I know someone who's trying to be an actress and also a screenplay writer, and maybe she's going to be in tech. And everyone thinks that's kind of lame. And I was like, but she doesn't know. If she knew she wanted, you know, she was going to be a good actress, she'd already be one. She might not be. It's good to have a backup plan. And that's actually where, when I look back at my experience and the experience of some of my classmates, I was phenomenally lucky. I still think it's kind of ridiculous that my job exists and I have it, because it's a great job. But I also was trying a bunch of things. I wasn't counting on any one thing. I was also doing technology consulting. I was also you know, applying for management consulting jobs. I was going out. I tried to start a small business briefly. Um, it's probably merciful that I didn't. But that we, like, we do think of those people as failures, right? And, and, and we think less of them. But in fact, that's a really creative and powerful way to be. And we should honor that more in our society. The other risk is obviously just that you encourage bad outcomes. I mean, you know, I, I like to talk about how great bankruptcy is, but in fact, in Memphis, Tennessee, you had a situation where um, wage garnishment was really easy, and as a result, like everyone was declaring bankruptcy, literally. So that um, something like seven percent of the city had declared bankruptcy at some point in the recent past. The result of this was not a flourishing of entrepreneurship. It was that if you wanted to get a loan for a car, uh, you had to, the down payment was the wholesale price of the car. So it basically, you know, collapsed credit. This is about striking a balance. And because I think that failure is really underappreciated, I want to push people towards being a little more pro-failure, being a little more willing to forgive past problems and walk away from them, to be a little more willing to take risks, to be a little more willing to recognize that failure can often just be pre-success. Um, it doesn't mean that all outcomes are going to be good. People are still going to fail. And in fact, you know, some people are never going to succeed. Um, it's not that the world is suddenly going to blossom into a, a, a bright future. But I do want us to think about, um, I'll close with a story that I've always really loved about Julius Caesar. Um, as, as many of you may know, he was banned from Rome um, and was wandering around in the, this general vicinity of Spain. And he was leading his troops, I'm not really sure where, and he came across a statue of Alexander the Great. Um, and, you know, I think I have now reached the age where someone like Alexander the Great um, really makes me think, because by the time he was my age, of course, he'd been dead for six years. And, Alex and, and Julius Caesar, who was at the time about 40, had um, about the same reaction. In fact, he stopped, took off his helmet, and started to cry. And all of his men are sitting around going, Caesar, come on, you're making me uncomfortable, dude. And, um, he, and finally one of them was like, why are you crying? And he said, look at what he'd done at 31 and I'm nothing. I've, you know, I'm never going to be a great man. Now, you may have your quarrels with how Caesar ultimately ended up, but I don't think that you can say he wasn't a phenomenal success at what he wanted to do, which was being you know, the dictator of Rome. Um, and, and so I think that like, I want to recast the idea of, of being a failure into possibly being the crucible for success. Um, and with that closing thought, I'm going to open it up to questions. Does it make sense then uh, California or United States should file for bankruptcy and start fresh because of all the problems that we're facing? There is um, a problem with... Uh, the United States Bankruptcy Code in that there is no way for a state to file bankruptcy. There is a way for municipalities to do it, and sadly, some of them now are. Um, but one of the big problems of California is that you don't have any mechanism to say, like, we are in a huge mess. A company that was in the state of California could go to a judge and have a judge basically sit down 
and kind of work through in a rational way that the company may not be able to do itself for whatever reason. Well, this is how much you can really afford to put towards pensions. This is, you know, and I, this is how much you can afford to put towards debt, and I'm canceling the rest of it. When a sovereign goes bankrupt, it's catastrophic. So what you see is something like Argentina. They default on their debt, and then they're completely out of debt markets. Um, and right before that happens, the interest rates on their debt tend to spike really, really high. And why is that? Because there's no, when you see this in Greece and in Ireland, there's no predictability. No one knows who's going to lose out. No one has a really good idea of what the process is. What the FDIC or, or the bankruptcy courts do is give people, there's some play in how, how debts are arranged and who gets paid. But in general, they give you a predictable, smooth process where every creditor has a voice. Every creditor gets to say, but there's a clear order of who's going to get paid and who isn't. Um, and so, you know, I actually, I wish that there were a way for the state of California to declare bankruptcy. I don't know if you guys are there yet. <laughs> um, but I wish that there were a process that kind of everyone understood what it was and knew what would happen if you did, because no one really knows, right? No one, a state has never done this and no one has any idea what's going to happen. But um, because no one has any idea, one of the things that's probably going to happen is that if California or Illinois does decide not to pay its debt, the, the muni debt markets are just going to shut down for all of the states, including the ones that are in OK shape. Bye. I uh, took a lot of comfort from your talk as someone who got his degree in engineering and then went on and got his MBA, was president of his class, and now I'm trying to find my next uh, job. But that aside, I was... Curious how you would apply your principles about failure to an institution in this country that the cost of failure is uh, infinity, in fact, which is the death penalty. And if that makes any sense to have a death penalty when you realize what, um, that failure is unavoidable. One way to look at the death penalty is to say, well, it's a fail-safe for someone who is really, really scary getting out again. And I think that in a very tiny minority of cases that, that you, know, you, you could make that argument for the kind of people who can like break out of supermax. But I don't think there's a lot of those super criminals around. Um, and in general, I think that what we now know from the Innocence Project tells you that the, you know, the death penalty fails catastrophically, right? <laughs> it's, supposed to, it's supposed to prevent failures, and instead what it does is execute people whom, I mean, we now know, given how many people who have been freed from death row by the Innocence Project, we've got to assume we executed some innocent people. Um, and I'd like to actually broaden that out a little bit, because one thing that I, I wanted to talk to, but talk about, but didn't get to, um, is that I think one of the ways where the U.S., the U.S. is good at a lot of this, but it's not good at everything. There are some areas in which we're really, really bad at this. And the way that we treat convicted felons is quite possibly the most egregious example of that. The fact that it is, once you are a convicted felon, get out. I understand the prudential reasons that people don't want to hire convicted felons. I would probably be nervous about it if I had a job to offer. Um, and I also understand the sense of justice. But the result is that you have a phenomenal amount of human capital that's basically destroyed. Once you've gone to prison, getting out and finding meaningful employment is virtually impossible. And so what do you end up with? you end up creating more criminals because where, what's the alternative? I mean, yes, they could go bag groceries at the Safeway for the next 60 years. Um, but if it were me, I might turn to crime and I feel like I, would, you know, I have a pretty strong aversion to committing thing, criminal acts. But if you cut people's choices off that much, you, when you really do push them back into it. And so I think that um, that's one area where we really should be strongly, strongly rethinking and applying some of the principles that we're willing to extend to most other people, um, to people who've committed crimes. Now, some people probably can't ever be let out of jail because they're really dangerous, but that's not anything near the majority. So there are at least two different ways to fail. Uh, and as you pointed out, the U.S. is a wonderful place to be broke compared to Europe. But it's a lousy place to be poor. And so to what extent do, does your argument extend to the way we handle people who are hereditarily poor? Well, I mean, I think one thing that I, I should actually say before I move on, that, that Mark has written a wonderful book about crime and how we handle punishment that goes to the last point I made and that everyone in this room should read because it's really terrific. Um, but, you know, I think that what we are good at is handling people who have fallen from somewhere. What we aren't good at 
is handling people who haven't, I mean, in some sense, if you're, you haven't failed if you're born poor, you kind of never started. Um, and I think that's a, a different question and something that this model doesn't handle. I certainly have opinions on, there's a very powerful line from a writer named John Scalzi who made a list of just like, being poor is, because he grew up in a trailer. And he said, being poor is paying for choices you didn't know you made at 14. And that is an area where the United States actually has a lot of mechanisms for dealing with people who made mistakes like that. We have college and we have so forth. But again, at the point, we have college, we have going back to school, we have our vocational training system is bad in many ways, but it's actually really good at taking someone who's 30 and decided they wanted to be a licensed practical nurse. What it's really bad at is when they come into contact with the criminal justice system. And that is you know, something where, again, I, I would like to commend everyone to, to Mark's work on this because I think that could actually make a huge difference. Um, and certainly, I think more support, I, I very much support the Danish model of unemployment, which I think, again, better than the system we have, where if you lose a job, they will not keep you on the dole for years the way most European countries will. Um, you have to go for job retraining, but they will support you really well while you're going for job retraining. And that's something that I think we really should be looking into. You mentioned the FDIC, uh, which protects banks, uh, the overall economy. But I, I wanted to ask you um, about what, what popped in my mind is uh, insurance in general. Do, are we, is the ins are insurance companies predatory? Or do, or do we, are we buying too much insurance? Not, not, not insurance on businesses, but personal insurance. Should insurance be a right? Should, I mean, is, uh, your thoughts on that? You know, I think that, like, for example, uh, I believe that fire departments should be provided by the state and paid for by tax dollars, and you should not be able to opt out of your fire service. To take, up, take an example that, that recently came up for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, you know, I think that uh, I'm in favor of forced savings. Either, you know, the Social Security system is arguably one way of that, but I, I'm certainly, I would be in favor of saying, like, you have to take 5% of your paycheck and you have to save it, because we can't credibly commit not to treat you. Right, we can't create. We're not going to let you starve when you're older. And a lot of people make this argument about health insurance. Then there's like car insurance. Is that a right? Uh, you know, I guess in California, where you guys really sort of can't live without a car. But uh, in Washington D.C., um, so I, I think it, it varies. You know, do I think that society should keep you from dying, even if you've made some really bad decisions, or from suffering from not having clothes or so? Yes, I do. Um, but at what point is that insurance, you know, like it, it, it doesn't look exactly like insurance in a lot of ways. Um, do we have too much insurance? Uh, I mean, like getting into financial decisions, most people buy either too much or like none. Um, and I say this as someone who knows that the extended warranty is mathematically a terrible idea and I still bought it on my iPhone. Um, <laughs> so you know, there we are loss averse. And at some point, like the psychological feeling I get from knowing that if my iPhone has any other problems aside from not making telephone calls, um, I don't know how many of you have an iPhone 4, but um, it's a really great web browser and a really terrible phone. Um, but that psychological benefit's a benefit, right? I, I sleep a little easier at night. So to the extent that people actually are loss averse, uh, you know, I'm not sure that too much insurance makes sense. If it makes you happy, then then you should have it. Um. I'm curious to find out your thoughts uh, in light of the BP oil disaster and the recent uh, financial industry travesties that have happened. Do you view regulation as a means to preventing failure or uh, promoting healthy failure? Um, promoting healthy failure. Um, I think like you can make an argument that this is not going to make me popular. I'll be like the most hated person on the web. You can make an argument that the BP failure was what we wanted. That the price of having, I, I, don't, I don't know that I believe this argument, but you can make an argument that we didn't want to pay more for our gasoline so that BP could make the, all of its oil rigs safer. Um, and that if you'd asked us ahead of time, rather than after we knew that there was a 100% chance of happening, if you'd ask us when there was a 5% chance of it happening, we might have said, yeah, don't bother. In the case of the banks, I, you know, absolutely. I think the, the FD, one of the things the FDIC does is prudential regulation. But it's not enough. That's not their, their main strength. The prudential regulation keeps the FDIC from losing too much money. 
um, and it makes the banks somewhat less likely to fail. And I think those are both good things. And I think things like increased capital requirements on the banks are something absolutely, I mean, I'm not alone in this. This is hardly like my own genius uh, idea. Everyone thinks we should have higher capital requirements because when they fail, it makes it less catastrophic. But I think that, that regulation should, um, should recognize that it's going to happen. And I think one really dangerous example of this is, you know, I think that the regulators thought that they were a lot smarter than they were. There were a whole generation, as Ken Rogoff, who used to be the chief economist of the IMF, said to me, there's a whole generation of, of doctoral uh, candidates who did their, their dissertations on what they called the great moderation, which was this idea that you didn't really have bad recessions and you had low inflation and we all lived happily ever after. And then, oops. Um, so what, if you go back to what happened at the, the SEC in 2004, they decided to let banks take on more leverage, so lower capital requirements um, for the amount of money that they borrowed. And so they went from, say, having $10 worth of loans for every $1 of assets to having like $30 worth of loans for every $1 of assets. And as we know with houses, the higher your leverage ratio, the easier it is to go underwater and be essentially bankrupt. Well, they didn't do this because like evil bank lobbyists made them. They did this because they thought they were geniuses. They thought they had the they, they thought they could, if anything bad happened, the computers were better, the economic theory was better, and they had just a whole bunch of super smart people at the SEC who were going to recognize that it was happening, and the Fed and all the others who recognized that it, it, it was happening, and they were going to intervene and they were going to stop it from spreading. So they didn't think contagion could happen in a modern financial market. And that turned out to just be 100% wrong. So the point at which you think that you're building a system, that you, can, you have built a system that can't fail, is when you are setting yourself up to go down like a ton of bricks. I'm wondering, if you, do you ever, do, have you ever done a kind of counterfactual on what if, instead of tying up $700 billion of taxpayer money in the TARP bailout, uh, Treasury had just maybe given a blank check to the FDIC and said, let them fail and resolve, you know, line up a network of buyers I wanted to clarify one thing. You, you mentioned the FDIC showing up with a big bag of cash. Most of the time, it doesn't spend most of that cash. The buyer of the failed bank takes on most of the liabilities, which is what would have happened in the case of, say, Citi and Bank of America, which are probably the two most likely to have failed. My take on what happened is that after Bear um, went under and they, they brokered this deal, there were a lot of people who were worried about what um, economists call moral hazard, which is the idea that if, if you buy uh, fire insurance, you suddenly become a lot less worried about smoking in bed. Um, and so they thought, we really need to send a lesson. The next one, like, they're going down. We're going to let them go. And they spent a lot of time thinking about what they needed to do to make that work. What ended up happening was they let Lehman came to the brink, it went under, and something that they just hadn't predicted happened, which was that Lehman was lending out a lot of money, was borrowing a lot of money very short term. And that money was what your money market funds were invested in. And there was a firm called the Reserve, the primary, the Reserve Fund. Their fund, their mutual fund did what's known as breaking the buck. So a mutual fund basically works like this. You buy a share, it's worth a dollar. And then any amount over that that it earns, that's your interest rate on the money market account, right? So when say the debt that it buys goes up by three cents in value, that three cents is your yield on your money market fund. But the shares are always worth exactly a dollar, which is why it looks like cash, even though it's not. When the shares go below a dollar, it's called breaking the buck, and people freak out. So what you got was, as soon as this happened, this actually happened before, but the parent companies had just topped it up. And in fact, when I wrote about this, I was like, I'm not sure if, uh, if Vanguard, which is run as a mutual, um, company could do this because it's a mutual and so forth. Like within 12 minutes, I had someone from Vanguard, I wrote this on my blog, on the phone, oh yes we can, yes we publish right now, please let people know, we can work it out, we're going to top them up. Because what happened was there was a, basically a bank run in the money markets and they had to go in and do something with Merrill because it was about to die. Um, and so what I got from that was that they, they realized they just couldn't predict it. The resolution wasn't working. It was too big and they didn't understand it. The, F, the role of the FDIC's prudential regulation is in, in part to keep things from failing, but it's also they know what's there. They can do it so quickly because they're the regulator. They can walk in, they already know what's going on. People just didn't understand these companies. They didn't understand what was inside of them. And so going forward, um, I, so I think that people just didn't, they didn't feel they had either the legal authority 
And this is what you hear over and over from Treasury. Yeah, that would have been nice. We can't do it. We did not have the legal authority. The FDIC was not the regulator of these banks. It didn't have the legal authority to wrap them up. And they're international. So as, as you know, if you've been following what happened with uh, Lehman in London, like that added whole different layers of complicatedness. Going forward, they're trying to develop that resolution authority. Will they succeed? I think they will make things more transparent. They will make things more predictable. They'll give us a better order of what happens to what creditors. Um, will it be perfect? I, I honestly don't know. Um, but I don't think that it was, it was possible at that time to just go in like the FDIC, both because of the legal issues and because they were just too afraid of what was going to happen. They didn't feel like they had the, the, the visibility in the markets to know what was going was to happen if they let Merrill go down and decided to treat it like an FDIC failure. Talked a lot about benefits of failure. In your mind, what's the most important one? Um, I really think that the most important one is that it clears the way for things that you wouldn't think of. That it, it allows the unpredictable and the risky to happen. Um, if we try to avoid failure, we end up locked into very safe but very dull sort of corridors. It just kills creativity. And so I think that both the willing, not just the willingness, but the things that it takes away um, can be a tremendous license for, for um, creativity. I think that you have to mitigate the costs of it in a lot of different ways um, because it shouldn't be catastrophic. To, like, it shouldn't be catastrophic for people. I'm okay if it's catastrophic for a company, but no one should be at home, you know, about to die of starvation because they failed. But, you know, done right, it's tremendously liberating. Thank you, Megan.